Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." Holy Father, you've told us to conduct ourselves in fear, not the fear of a cringing slave and those who are lost, but the fear that we have because we know you, the fear of not wanting to disappoint you, the fear of coming under your discipline. You've called us to be holy for you are holy. And in this day of great compromise, may we fix our hope on you. May we gird up our minds this morning as Peter commanded us for action that we might not allow our thinking to wander and drift, but to give our full focus to your holy, inspired, infallible word. May you speak to everyone who will hear this message. May you fill me and anoint me and use me by the Spirit of God that I might lift up Jesus and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. If you're new, it should be easy to find. It's the last book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, we are between a book-by-book, verse-by-verse exposition, and I'm doing a series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 16th message in this series, and of course, it will ultimately culminate with Christ's return to the earth as he rules and reigns for a thousand years, and then we enter into a brand new heaven and earth with the new Jerusalem coming down. Now, certainly, as we began this series, we spoke about the rapture in Israel's rebirth. And God could have, I suppose, say a thousand years after Jesus ascended, gathered the Jewish people, brought them back into the land, and set the stage for the second coming, but he didn't. Because after four, five, six hundred years, he didn't, many thought, well, God's done with Israel. But after some 2,000 years, God has brought the Jewish people back into the land. It's one of the super signs for the return of Christ, along with growing apostasy, along with immorality, like Noah's day, like Lot's day, and globalism. Globalism is one of the marks of the last days, Here on this chart, as you can see, the next great event in God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. After the church is removed, there's a period of time, we don't know if it's weeks, days, or months, but it would appear to be short. I suspect this is when the battle of Gog and Magog will take place, but with millions of people gone across the planet, there'll be great crisis on the earth, and there'll be a perfect environment in the midst of crisis for a world leader to step on the scene. He will sign a treaty with Israel. 
And that will begin the seven-year clock that the prophet Daniel, that John affirms, and that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. The first three and a half years, Israel's protected. The last three and a half years, they're grossly persecuted. And of course, uh, we are witnessing in our day, not the birth pangs. I often hear popular speakers say, well, we're in the birth pangs. We're not. That's not really to handle God's word accurately. Now, of course, to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And if anything, maybe it's near term. And certainly we're witnessing some of the Braxton Hicks contractions But Jesus is clear in Matthew 24, verse 8, the birth pangs do not begin until the first half of the tribulation. So we study verses 4 through 14 in that chapter. We saw a perfect parallel between what Jesus describes and the seven sealed judgments that unfold in the Revelation. And then Jesus taught right in the middle of this seven-year period, that middle slash, you could write above there in your minds, the abomination of desolation, It's a turning point, it's a game changer where we go from tribulation to great tribulation. And so Jesus has Peter, James, John, and Andrew there on the Mount of Olives. They ask him questions about his return. And he gives the longest single answer to any question that's ever asked. And he speaks of this event in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. The abomination of desolation. Now, these were men who studied the scriptures. They knew precisely what Jesus was referring to. In our day, because people no longer read the Bible, and sadly, it's no longer taught, many are in the dark. But this is an event that will take place, and we began by studying the time frame in which it will happen, and we looked at Daniel's prophecy, and just as Daniel said, just as Jesus affirmed in Matthew 24, 15, and just as John the apostle declared in the Revelation, happens right in the middle of that seven-year period. Then we looked at some of the specifics, and we'll further explore those in the days ahead, as to how the abomination of desolation will specifically take place. And then third, we're going to see how global religion will be the glue to achieve the three major objectives governmentally, economically, and religiously that the Antichrist will have. There's a lot going on today that have the same objectives. It used to be called the New World Order. Today, it is dubbed the Great Reset. But it's really nothing new It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, some would say the first great reset took place when God flooded the world and created a new place for Noah and his family to enter. They walked into a brand new, fresh, cleansed world. But they were still sinners. And I suppose from a heavenly perspective, that was indeed a great reset. But the first great reset that took place or was attempted to take place through man took place in Nimrod's day. And of course, now uh, Klaus Schwab 
has dubbed through his book called The Great Reset, some objectives that he and leaders from around the world have had. They have met every year since 1951 when he founded the World Economic Forum. This past uh, year, just a few months ago, once again, the World Bank was there. The International Monetary Fund was represented. Uh, The United Nations was represented in leaders, including presidents, prime ministers, and kings from over 100 nations came together. A man has always desired, whether it's a Pharaoh or a Hitler or a Stalin or a Caesar, to rule the world, but it's never happened. But there's coming a time in human history when God will allow it to happen for a short period of time, and it will be worldwide in scope. Now, today, when people talk about the problems of the world, and there seems to be a growing multiplicity of them, they're convinced that the solution is global in nature that the only way to solve the problems is to create a global consciousness. And so they have many objectives. One objective is because they believe that much of the trouble in the world today come with borders, with countries. They want to eliminate the borders. And so if you've studied the WEF and one of their objectives, they're doing the very thing that God said not to do. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we're told that God has made from one man, being Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations. So God has established borders. And when borders are eradicated or eliminated, you no longer have a nation. And that may be part of the genesis for the immigration issues that we have. Even our own president has named his four most important piece of legislation, Build Back Back Better. That comes right out of the World Economic Forum. So four million people now have walked over the border unhindered. You say, oh, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. Now, God's not against immigration. In fact, God told the Jewish people that they were to welcome the alien, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, all of them, because they were once strangers in a land. But in welcoming them, they had to ascribe to the principles by which the theocracy of Israel was under. But no longer do people see that. There is certainly an economic motivation in the WEF. It's called socialism. And again, that's in violation of Scripture because God teaches the principle of personal property in Holy Scripture. So they see this crisis that was called COVID as an opportunity. Again, Schwab said the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. So they don't see the pandemic, first and foremost, as a catastrophe, but as an opportunity. And so with the pandemic waning, at the most recent meeting they had just a few months ago, the center of their discussion was climate, global climate crises. And again, they'll use this, no doubt, to try to create a world unity, a world government, a world coming together. And so just recently, our president signed into law what was called the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's dubbed the single largest investment in climate action in U.S. history. 
and will profoundly alter the international landscape. And so many of the decisions, if you just read the news that they make, is predicated on this green world that they're trying to create and to develop. And as I hope to show you next time, one of the ways in which this entity is going to come about is there'll be a collapse in the economies of the world. With that said, this man, Klaus Schwab, many times will get behind his podium with his robe on, and he doesn't hide that he heads a movement that has religious theology behind it. Every man has a theology. Even the atheist has a theology. His theology is that there's no God. Theos, God, all of us. It's your study of God, what you believe about God. The atheist, the agnostic, everyone has a theology. And Schwab really waves his theology on his robe and on the front of his pulpit. And so I highlighted a few of these things to you last time. There's the star of Ishtar, that nine-pointed star, also called the anagram, and it's a symbol of the religious occult, and it brings together a lot of physical traditions that are found in Buddhism and Catholicism and uh, Taoism, the Baha'i faith and so forth, and Greek philosophy. Uh, and it's the pursuit, they say, an interaction of co- with cosmic deities. He teaches us that we should interact with cosmic deities. What he's really talking about is interacting with demons. Another prominent icon on his podium is that bull with a cross positioned between its horns. That's a symbol for Mithraism. Mithraism is that you worship and esteem the creation. That's Romans 1 all over again. That's the United States of America. That's why we are experiencing the wrath of God. Wrath comes on a number of levels. There's cataclysmic wrath sometimes through things like the flood or Sodom. There's eternal wrath in the future. There's tribulational wrath. But there's present-day wrath. Paul speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. And so when a nation no longer acknowledges God as God, oh, God didn't make us, evolution created us, then God gives them over to sensuality, to homosexuality, to a depraved mind. And we are witnessing that right before our eyes. Notice also on the podium, the Latin words that literally mean knowledge of immense power. That's an an expression from Gnosticism. Many of you know about Gnosticism because John deals at least with pre-Gnosticism in his first epistle, 1 John. But again, their argument is that the occultic belief as you interact with cosmic deities will bring enlightenment, but not the truth of Holy Scripture. And so here's this man. He's a transhumanist, as he describes himself. He employs 700 people in Geneva at their headquarters, not to mention he has offices in New York, San Francisco, Beijing, Tokyo, to name just a few cities. And at their most recent meeting, again, they had all these leaders, UN, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and over 100 nations came together. They're not naive and stupid. I'm not saying that everyone who attends the meeting ascribes to these things. But you can't be blind to where this man is coming and what drives him, among other things.
And so what we find here in Revelation chapter 17 is a one world religious system. And what we are seeing today right before our eyes being developed, not just through the WEF, which represents the governmental side of things, but through other institutions where there's a push for a one world religious unity. And what will happen during the time of the tribulation, as we'll see, is the two are going to be wed together. And so Revelation 17 speaks of this coming world religion where the governments and the religions of the world form a unity. What we see here is history before it happens. That's what prophecy is. God writes history before it happens. And every prophecy God has ever written, he bats a thousand on. He is never wrong. So we would do well to pay attention this morning. And of course, I think what will be the glue, among other things, will be religion. Hardly will you find someone who's so committed to a political party that they will die for it. But in the realm of religion, it's very different. You have Muslims who will blow themselves up for something that's not true. And then we have millions of Christians throughout the centuries who have died unwilling to renounce Jesus for what is true. And so Satan knows the power of bringing the two together, and that's what he is going to accomplish in days ahead. Revelation 17, I hope you have found it. Let's begin by reading our text. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now, just to zoom in here on the immediate context so you know where we are in the Revelation, here's a chart that might be helpful to you. Again, the rapture has already taken place. It takes place, it's described in Revelation 4, when a door in heaven is open. And so you don't see the church between Revelation 4 and 18. You do not see the church again until they come back with the Lord Jesus in glory. And so the seven-year period will tick off. And during this seven-year period, in the first half, you can see seven seal judgments. We've studied these in some weeks past. They are tribulation, but not of the most intense kind. They're awful, but not what is going to come. And so there are seven seals. And of course, the first six seals perfectly parallel Matthew 4 through 14. And we saw the parallel. It's not accidental. And that's why I say we're not in the birth pangs. The birth pangs are still future. But then there's this middle event that takes place, the abomination of desolation. And the seventh seal is open. And in seven seals, there are contained seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, there are contained seven bowls. If you remember, when we studied the book of Revelation some years back, the seals can only be seen one at a time. 
But when the seventh seal is open, you can see all seven trumpets and all seven bows, and it is so, like, incredible, it takes your breath away, and there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. And so here's one of the angels who had administered the bold judgments. And so what you find here in, by the way, Revelation 17 and 18, is God just slowing down for a moment, and he's showing us what is happening in the interim. And so it's often in fast motion, and then God steps back, he pauses, and kind of looks back at what has been happening. So when you come to Revelation 7, he kind of stops and tells you what was happening during the time of the seal judgments. The second coming to the earth happens in in Revelation 19. Right now here in 17 and 18, again, he's in slow motion. In chapter 17, he's describing this religious entity called Babylon and her demise. And then in chapter 18, economic Babylon and her demise. They're both in the same place. They're both destroyed because they are wed together. And so we read in verse one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters. And we'll see in a moment, this great harlot also called the woman is a description of this religious entity, not of a literal woman, but of a religious entity. And she is dubbed here the mother of harlots. She's known also as Mystery Babylon. There's an actual city called Babylon, and then there's what we call Mystery Babylon. Mysterion describes something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Paul says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. It was in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. But now under the new covenant material, God has completely unfolded for us the catching up of the church. Paul said, I tell you another mystery. God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek and brought them together into one body. Again, it was there in the Old Testament, but now it is fully revealed under the new covenant. And so this mystery Babylon is actually found in the Old Testament in kernel form, but it is now unfolded in the New Testament. Babylon is an important term. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and 44 of those verses refer to Babylon. That's about 11% of the book of Revelation. So for God to devote that much time to Babylon, we should pay attention. And God knew that people in every age and every dispensation throughout the course of human history could be confused through religion, through false religion. And so like Jerusalem, which is the city of God, this coming place, Babylon will be the city of the Antichrist, the city of the evil one. He will literally rule from this particular place. And so the first time Babylon appears in Scripture is in Genesis. The last time it appears in Scripture is here in the Revelation. The first time Jerusalem, and by the way, the single the, the two single most cities that are mentioned in all of Scripture are Jerusalem and Babylon. One representing God's plans, the city of God, the other representing man's plans. So Jerusalem is mentioned over 900 times in Scripture. When I take people to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and 
the Muslims say, well, that's their property. And I will often ask, I said, how many times do you think Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? Take a guess, 100, 500, 300. It's never mentioned once. So the fact that Jerusalem was their place of worship, that's something that eventually evolved into a teaching that they taught. But Jerusalem is an important city. In fact, it is the single most important city on the face of the earth. It's more important than Beijing or Washington or New York or Tokyo. It is God's holy city. Now go back, if you will, to the book of Genesis. I think it will be worth turning. Go to Genesis chapter 11. I hope you bring a Bible with you. You'll get much more out of a sermon if you have a copy of the scriptures in your lap. Genesis chapter 11, because what we find in this section of scripture is really the first mention of this place called Babylon. If you remember, after the great flood, God commanded Noah in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yet when you come here to Genesis chapter 10, the people had multiplied, but they hadn't completely obeyed the commandment. They weren't spreading, they were clustering in what's called the land of Shinar, which by the way, Daniel 12.2 tells us that's the place that Daniel was taken to, also called Babylon. Babylon is a later version of Babel. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word that is translated Babel is the same Hebrew word for Babylon. In fact, many English Bibles don't render it Babel. They render it Babylon. But some translations will put Babel so as to distinguish it from a particular geographical location. So here are these people. They're clustering in the plain of Shinar. And they basically say, this is the place where we are going to build our civilization. We're not going to scatter as God commanded us. We're going to stay together. Now, if you notice Genesis 10 and verse 9, God has already noted for us in that verse that Nimrod is behind this rebellion. He's the leader. He's dubbed a mighty hunter, or you could render it a mighty warrior. And by the way, that title is not a compliment. Now, God's not against hunting. I'm not afraid to shoot a deer. I wouldn't be cruel to an animal. Cruelty is something the wicked do. You say, well, I can't shoot a deer. Well, someone shot the beef you had on your table last night or did something with it. God's not against hunting. Actually, he commands us to kill and to eat. But he is against hunting men whether it's a Hitler or a Stalin or a Nimrod who is a picture, who is a type of the coming Antichrist who will literally destroy millions of people. And so their defiance, their rebellion is summarized in these two words, let us. Look at Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. You might want to circle let us. It appears three times. They said to one another, come let us. That's the first let us. Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. And so the coming Antichrist called the man of sin, he's going to unite men together. He's going to bind them together in a one-world government. So let's build bricks, let's burn them, kill them thoroughly. We want a good, solid structure. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come let us, there's the second time, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us, there's the third one, let us make for ourselves a name, 
Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So they have a three-stage plan, and these three sayings led us. First, let us build a city. That's a social goal. The very thing that God told them not to do, I want you to spread out and fill the earth. They said, no, we're going to congregate and build our own little city. Secondly, let us build a tower. We'll see in a moment that's a religious goal. And third, let us build a name for ourselves. That's a psychological goal. It's ego-driven. So they have a social, a spiritual, and a psychological goal. And it's not about God, it's about them. It's very much like what Nebuchadnezzar said in his Babylon in Daniel 4.30. He went out, looked at his kingdom, and he said, is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Even so, the coming Antichrist will do the same in his Babylon. And so there will be a one-world religious Babylon and there'll be a one-world governmental economic Babylon. Now, I don't think, as some people paint these folks, that they're just a bunch of ignoramuses. That they think they can build some tower that can literally reach into the throne room of God. Now, if you look at the text carefully and you have the NASB, you will notice the words will reach. You see it there? Those are added by the translators to make it read a little bit more smoothly and less wooden when you go from Hebrew into English. But literally, it reads, who's top into heaven. And so sometimes words, when they're added, while they're helpful, they can cloud the meaning. In other words, the top of the tower was dedicated to the universe because this is a system of worship. They had denied God and they were worshiping the God of creation. Think your way through this for a moment. Towers, as you read of them in scripture, they're often seen as places of lookout, places for protection to ward off your enemies or to spot them as they are approaching. But that's not what's in view here. I mean, who's going to attack them? They're all one people. They're all in unison. They don't have any enemies at this point. So this is not some group of people who are literally trying to build some tower that will come into the throne room of God. These are people who have a religious motivation. And most of you, if you've studied astrology, or you will know that this is really the first picture of a ziggurat. If um, people write about the history of uh, astrology or the history of the zodiac, where do they always go back to? The Babylonians. They say that's the Genesis. Or sometimes they'll say the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. But really it goes back even further, specifically to this man named Nimrod. This is the first attempt at a unified religion where man basically is deifying himself and the creation and rebelling against God. And that's precisely what the Antichrist is going to do in mystery Babylon. Look at verse 5. God now puts man in his place. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. God, through Moses, in essence, is mocking the tower. He's saying God came down to see it as if he were unaware. God sees all. He's just wanting to underscore and emphasize the ludicrous nature of man's puny little pride that somehow he can escape an all-living, all-powerful God. 
And so notice this conversation that unfolds in the Trinity, starting in verse 6. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. Man's a little too big for his britches. So God steps in. They're not scattered as he commanded them. They're not obeying me. They're defying me. They're fortifying themselves. They're not moving out as I commanded. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. They agreed that they were in one accord. So there's no real checks or balances. People, especially missionaries, sometimes get frustrated with all the languages in the world. But they are actually a blessing from God Almighty. Because if we all spoke the same language universally, that would actually foster and promote the cause of evil. And so the fact that there are so many languages in the world actually slow down the spread of evil. And so we read here in verse 7, come let us, circle that plural pronoun, who's the us? This is the triune God. He has already introduced himself in Genesis 1 in the opening verse, the way the Hebrew is structured. And then later in Genesis, let us make man in our image, not angels. No, that's the triune God having this conversation. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So here is this proud people. They think they have it all together. They've plotted the heavens. They've made their own zodiacs. But in the process, they have forgot God. And since their tongues are praising themselves how great they are, instead of the God who gave them their tongues, God confuses their speech. One man says, hand me a brick. What do you say? What do you say? And they can't understand one another. And so the architects are trying to put their heads together to work out the engineering problems, and no one can seemingly understand one another. And based on chapter 10... It's clear that various languages had been distributed. One of the things that Moses does is sometimes he'll unfold a picture and then he'll describe it in the chapters that follow. And so in Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. I preached a whole sermon on it. It's not filler. It's critically important to understanding much of the rest of the Bible. And then in Genesis 11, he tells us how we got to the table of nations. So what would you do? You would go home to your little enclave And those are the people you understood and you could communicate with. And you hung with them. And that's significant. And so we read a little bit further here in verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. And so they went home. They pulled away. They lived within their little conclaves. And by the way, that's how we get the various nations, the goyim, the ethnoi. And so we have Japanese people and Chinese people and African people and European people. We're from one blood. He created from one man. But as you married within your conclaves and you married long enough, you would begin to develop particular racial features. The races are not a product of evolution. They are a product of what God did at the Tower of Babel. And so the Lord scattered them. How did he scatter them? We're not told. But God could move them dramatically. He moved Philip from one city to another city miles away in the the twinkling of an eye, so to speak. 
And it may be at this time, this is when God not only scattered them to different places, but then broke up the continents. You look at the continents and they look like they fit together as big puzzle pieces. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic that this is when it happened, but I won't be surprised when I get to heaven to find out this is when it happened. Look at the summary statement in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And in most languages, even in English, it just means confusion. I'm not sure why this language program is called Babel. I think it's supposed to be designed to help you to speak a language, but it means confusion. Maybe they're stupid. I don't know. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this is not by accident that the final one world government under a one world leader is referenced as Babylon here in Genesis, here in Revelation uh, chapters 18 and 19. So go back there to Revelation 17, 18 and 19, and we're going to focus on a few verses in chapter 17. So when Nimrod built the city, its name was called Babel, or some of your English Bibles say its name was called Babylon. It's the same word. It's found 233 times in the Hebrew text, and almost always it's translated Babylon. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 100% of the time, same word is used. And so what happened to the Tower of Babel that God stopped he is going to allow it to unfold through this coming leader known as the Antichrist. And God will ultimately judge them. Just as God judges religious Babylon and economic Babylon, the Nimrods of this world cannot escape the judgment of God. And in 17 and 18, you see how God unfolds that judgment. So with that said, that's all by way of introduction. <laughs> uh, you have a note-taking outline. Let's first think about the perversion of religious Babylon. There are three characteristics of religious Babylon that I want you to get. And the first concerns the perversion of religious Babylon here in Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial to help us to find our way around, but sometimes they can be distracting because sometimes if we don't go back to the preceding verses, we miss the context and the flow. If you look back at chapter 16 and verse 19, God just said, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So Babylon the Great is the theme of chapters 17 and 18, and God remembers this place, this institution, religiously and economically, in his wrath. And so the woman in this chapter, if you read the whole chapter, she's described as the great harlot, and God uses the picture of a woman who is immoral to describe what is unfolding religiously that they are guilty of spiritual fornication or spiritual immorality. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 1, Revelation 14 and verse 8. Revelation 14, 8, God has already said, and another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, same place. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
And so the devil's counterfeit false church is like a harlot, and foolish sinners will go to her. And in seducing them, they are acting like a prostitute. And of course, the New Testament uses the same kind of terminology in other places. Throughout the Old Testament, God likens Israel sometimes in their rebellion to harlotry. James, we studied the book of James not long ago. And in James 4.4, he says, you adulteress. It's the same theme. It's a different word. Uh, The word for adultery, morcalis. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When the world steals away your affection and you follow the teachings of the world, you're committing, James says, spiritual adultery. Or what John says, spiritual fornication. Verse 2, I want you to see the extent of this harlot's seduction with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So it's not by accident the kings of the earth who are described in chapter 18 who run this governmental entity under the leadership of the Antichrist is wed together with this spiritual Babylon because there is a, a, a synergism that comes as they feed off of one another. And again, he's describing these world leaders who are drunk or intoxicated by the teaching of this false religion. Now think about it. The church is gone. The church has been caught up. And so the salt of the world, the light of the salt of the earth, the light of the world is gone. Salt preserves righteousness. Light dispels darkness. It's gone. And so there's a certain freedom for wickedness that will unfold. And so this slick seductress comes alongside and takes advantage. There's no dissenting voices. They're gone. And it's not until after the treaty is signed that God will seal and save 144,000 Jews who will start preaching the gospel. And so even today there are people who in some respects are helping to build this coming one world religion. I was behind a car coming out of my neighborhood the other day, and it said, coexist, you know, with all those world symbols behind it. That's religious Babylon, now in microcosmic form, but it is unfolding even in our day. Here's a picture of John Paul II. By the way, a major shift happened in Roman Catholic theology under this particular pope because he began for the first time to make efforts to syncretize the religions of the world. And so in 1986, he had a meeting in Assisi, Italy, for all the religious leaders of the world to pray for peace. He brought snake worshipers, he brought fire worshipers, he brought spiritists, he brought animists, he brought Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, North American Indian witch doctors, and all the major world religions were represented. Let me read some of his proclamation that he made to the people in 1986. He said, I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming all of you for our world day of prayer in this town of Assisi. Let me begin by thanking you from the bottom of my heart for the openness and goodwill with which you have accepted my invitation to pray at Assisi. 
The coming together of so many religious leaders to pray is in itself an invitation today to the world to become aware that there exists another dimension of peace and another way of promoting it, which is not the result of negotiations, political compromises, or economic bargaining. It is a result of prayer, which in the diversity of religions expresses a relationship with the supreme power that surpasses our human cap capacities alone. And so as you read the whole document, it becomes clear that he felt like there was a spiritual energy that could be unleashed as all these world religions came and prayed. Did he say that there is one intercessor between God and man, Christ Jesus? No, not at all. He affirmed that they had access to God through their religious systems, just as he did. In fact, he allowed the Dalai Lama of Tibet, whom he became great friends with, there in the Catholic Church in Assisi, to come and to put a symbol of their religion on the altar, and then all these Sintoists came and chanted and rang bells around it. Here's a picture of Pope Benedict XVI, in 2001, he called the people back to Assisi, Italy. As the next picture shows, he gathered over 300 religious leaders to mark the 25th anniversary. If you look carefully, you'll see him in his little white robe. And of course, um, uh, what he did there was a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And of course, what he was doing there as he invited all these religious leaders to come, is he was sowing seeds for this coming one world religion that the scriptures speak of. Uh, here's a picture of Pope Francis, and he stated just a few years ago, and I quote, most people in the world identify to be believers. This should lead us to dialogue among the world's religions, we should not stop praying for it and collaborating with those who think differently. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. But there is one certainty that we have for all and that we are all children of God. Really, I didn't know that, Mr. Pope. John, who gives us the gospel of John, says, but as many as received him, contextually Jesus, to them, he gave the right to become, because they weren't before, to become children of God, even to those, that is, to those who believe in his name. And yet he argued that we're all children of God, and as you read the whole proclamation, that we all have access to God. No, we don't. In fact, since this pope has been in office on over 20 different occasions, he has brought together world religious leaders to promote a world unity in religion. Here's Pope Francis again. This was in 2020. He is hugging the Grand Amman of Al-Hazar, and together they signed, quote, the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together, in which they agreed. One document, they both put their signature on the bottom, a Muslim and a Catholic. The first and most important aim of religions is to believe in God, to honor him and to invite all men and women to believe that this universe depends on a God who governs it. The pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. 
They agreed that all religions were willed by God. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Pope. You claim Peter was your first pope. What about what Pope Peter said in Acts 4 and verse 12? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter affirmed, the New Testament affirms, the Old Testament affirms that any other God than the God of the Bible is a false God. Now, here's Pope Francis just last week in Kakistan. And of course, he was the lead person pictured here dead center in the Seventh Congress of World and Traditional Religions. The top 30 religions of the world were invited in terms of all their leaders, and there were thousands of participants who came to this conference. Um, Here pictured is the UN secretary giving a speech. I I looked at that conference room. I thought, man, that is a beautiful conference room. And then behind it, you have thousands of people. So here is a UN secretary general speaking uh, to all these uh, world religions. And he is representing the world governments. Remember, the two are going to come together. And we'll see that before this text is finished. And he said this, I'm pleased to greet the Seventh Congress of World and Traditional Religions. We count on faith actors to use their moral voice and spiritual authority to promote mutual respect, compassion, and unity, to resolve differences peacefully, to recognize diversity as richness, to stand in solidarity with one another and with generations to come. Now, I read the final document that each of these heads of 30 major world religions signed, including the Pope, and not once, not once, does the name Jesus appear. Not once. Here's the Pope speaking at the same conference. And when he gave his address, not once did he mention the name of Jesus. I thought you're the vicar of Christ. And you can't name Jesus? Why can't you stand up for Jesus? It says, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. But I guess you couldn't really stand up for Jesus because you put your signature, Mr. Pope, on the 35 affirmations of their declaration. Let me read just one of their affirmations. It's number 10. It says, quote, we note that pluralism in terms of differences in skin color, gender, race, language, and culture are expressions of the wisdom of God in creation. Now, there's a lot of things I've said this morning, some things that are true, but that's the way the devil works. He disguises himself as an angel of light. But listen, goes on to say, number 10, religious diversity is permitted by God And therefore, any coercion to a particular religion and religious doctrine is unacceptable. Mr. Pope Francis signed that document. That any coercion, any proselytizing to a particular religion is unacceptable. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Don't you believe that, Mr. Pope? And let me just be clear here. I'm not here to bash Catholics. As a former Roman Catholic, 
I have a deep burden to see Roman Catholics come into the kingdom. In fact, if anyone does the bashing, it's not evangelicals. It's the Roman Catholic Church itself because in the Council of Trent, which was their response to Luther's 95 Theses, over 100 times they lay anathemas, damnations, to Bible-believing Christians. And by the way, that document was reaffirmed at Vatican I, at Vatican II, and then at the College of Cardinals in 2010. It still stands as a dogma of the church. Now back here, look at verse 2 of Revelation 17. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So after the rapture, Catholics will carry on, as will liberal Protestants, as will Mormons and Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists and Zoroasterism, and they'll all continue on. And they'll come together. Now that's the perversion of religious Babylon. Secondly, there in your outline, let's think for a moment about the power, the power of religious Babylon. We are told now, beginning in verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into, the, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That should sound a little familiar to you. You might want to put Revelation 13.1 in the margin. We studied this three weeks ago. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. This verse is similar to Revelation 17.3, symbolic language. Remember in the opening verse, God communicated, he signified, he signed, S-I-G-N, signified the book of Revelation in symbols. And I won't take the time, but we explored why God did that. Most of the symbols are interpreted within Revelation itself or from some Old Testament passage. And so if you look down at verse 9 of the chapter that's open, in both passages, this beast, this antichrist is symbolically described as having seven heads, and its explanation is found. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now let me just say there's only one city on the whole planet that has seven mountains, and if you've been to Israel... We stood on the Mount of Olives, and someone asked me, honestly, this was about 10 years ago, they said, why do they call this a mountain? It looks like a big hill to me. Well, uh, why do they call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Galilee, and there's no salt in it? In different parts of the world, different designations are used to describe geographical locations. In the Bible, a hill is called a mountain. And so some translations render it seven hills or seven mountains, there's only one place on the planet which is known for being built on seven hills, and that, of course, is the city of Rome. And so the headquarters for this religious harlot sits on seven hills or seven mountains, and uh, again, uh, she is described here in verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. Now, this signifies, as we'll see later on, that these world leaders will stand in open defiance to all that is holy, to all that God stands for. They have blasphemous names. And that's how the Antichrist has already been described for us in the 13th chapter. 
Now think about it, the Antichrist comes out of a revived Roman Empire. That's what the book of Daniel teaches. What was the capital of Rome? The Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And so it's not surprising, since there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, that the religious governmental headquarters for the Antichrist will be the city of Rome. And I won't be at all surprised if they'll actually use the property of the Vatican itself. But what you describe here are these kings of the earth who get in bed with mystery Babylon, with religious Babylon, and they commit, in essence, spiritual fornication. Just as Christ has his bride called the church, the Antichrist will have his woman. And notice verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman, remember the woman being this religious harlot, sitting on a scarlet beast. And so the term beast is used of the literal antichrist, but also of the uh, institution, the world government that he has. Just like we say, well, Hitler burned Germany. I mean, Hitler uh, bombed London. Did he literally bomb London? No, but Germany did. But since Hitler represented Germany, you could say, well, Hitler bombed England and understand what's meant. That's really what is unfolding here. And so what we see here is this wedding together. You have this woman sitting on a beast. Now, the leader of all false teaching in this day, of course, will be the Antichrist himself. And we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, he will come with false lying signs, wonders, and miracles. And so won't his agents, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But at this point in history, the wall of separation between religion and government is removed. Why? Because the Antichrist understands the power of religion and how he can use it for his evil end. Here, by the way, is a picture of the euro-dollar coin. It's a woman sitting on a beast. And if you go, of course, to the European headquarters where their so-called parliament meets, you'll see a statue that's pictured here of a woman sitting on a beast. It's not by accident. It's not by coincidence. The devil knowing the power of religion and government together, they're going to have an entity. I mean, the Antichrist will come along with his false signs, wonders, miracles. These false prophets who are agents of the evil one will do wonders so as to deceive, to deceive even the elect. And if you bring the two together, you have a synergism for a one world dictator like you've never seen. Now, that brings us third and finally to the persecution, to the persecution of religious Babylon. We read now, beginning in verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. So this verse indicates that this religious harlot is extremely prosperous, the state will pour money into her coffers during a time of intense economic deprivation. And the state will have her influence and turn her power. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. Just like a prostitute will dress provocatively and 
luxurious uh, clothing and often adorn herself with all kinds of jewelry. Even so, this false religion will have tremendous wealth that they will bring to the table. But it's interesting because what's descriptive here of her, these gold, precious stones, and pearls are descriptive of heaven, and they're just trinkets in heaven. Furthermore, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. So while this religion appears to be healthy and good and prosperous on the outside, it's corrupt on the inside. In her cup, it's full of abominations and immorality. And that's what often happens in false religion. A religion's theology is typically dictated by their morality. Think your way through. Here's a picture uh, of an interview Pope Francis had on an airplane not all that long ago. And on this particular interview, you can go back and read the whole dialogue. It's rather interesting. He said that homosexuals are God's children. Well, I suppose in a creative sense, but that's not how he meant it. He meant it in a spiritual sense. And that's what evangelicals are doing. We are buying into same-sex attraction as being okay and something that does not need to be repented of. And of course, uh, he conducted a mass for gay Catholics, and he is the first pope ever, it was almost lost under the banner of COVID in 2020, to endorse same-sex homosexual civil unions. I quote from the documentary that they put out, homosexual people, he said, have the right to be in a family. They are children of God. What we have to have is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. Really? You wouldn't ask them, Mr. Pope, to repent Do not be deceived, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, and on the list shall go, shall inherit the kingdom of God. There's hope. Such were some of you. You are endorsing civil unions so that they can have their family, so to speak, that God calls wickedness. In an interview, he said, quote, if a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge? You're supposed to judge what Scripture has judged. You're not judging the person. You are just repeating a judgment that God Almighty has made. Here's a picture of James Martin. Just a few months ago, the Pope named Dicastery for Communications. That means He is the communications director for the Vatican, and he was just appointed for a five-year term. He was a fellow Jesuit. And if you know anything about James Martin, he had a congregation of homosexual people. And just last week, you can go online and you can watch it on YouTube, he put out a little video where he exalts this theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann, who basically, just to paraphrase the video, go home and watch it. Brueggemann 
supposedly sees things in the scripture and these difficult passages that deal with the sin of homosexuality that no one else has seen, making it okay. And of course, uh, this same director of communications just argued in June that Roman Catholic churches across the world should celebrate Gay Pride Month. Why? Because being gay is okay. This is the Pope's communications director. Here's a recent photo just two months ago. It was a gathering. If you've been with me, we did a tour once on the footsteps of Paul. You recognize that place, the Sistine Chapel. Here are 21 new cardinals that the Pope just appointed. I suspect this Pope will probably retire. But he is putting in place people who think and act and vote the way he would. And so what is happening is a stench to God. And what will happen is a stench to God's nostrils because these leaders are described as being full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Verse 5 reminds us of the source of this coming Babylon. Notice, and on her forehead a name was written... A mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, if you remember, typically when you come to the New American Standard and something goes all caps, you're thinking Old Testament. And that's true almost always. There's only a couple of exceptions, and this is one of them. When there's a title, like the title above Jesus' cross, or here, a title of Mystery Babylon, then they put it in all capital letters. You know there's no capital letters or minor or small letters to distinguish words in Greek. It's either all caps or all lowercase. The publishers have to put those in. Sometimes it's clear, there's no question, that his is a pronoun for God, so we'll capitalize it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they put in caps here this title of this Woman, but just know this is not some Old Testament quotation. It's a description of this coming world religion. And of course, Babylon in Scripture is a code name for Rome, like Wall Street is a code name uh, in Madison Avenue for the economic world. Babylon in Scripture is a code name for Rome. Peter uses it that way in 1 Peter 5.13 when he says, greet all the saints in Babylon. He's speaking, of course, of Rome, if you know that passage. But the point of verse 5 is clear is that this false religion goes all the way back to its genesis, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, all the way back to Nimrod, whom we looked at just a few moments ago. Now, look at verse 6, if you will. Um, And let me just say parenthetically before we leave verse 5, notice she has on her forehead. Why on her forehead? Because that's how prostitutes dressed in the first century. That was their trademark. Any first century reader that just jumped out, oh, I know what he's talking about. You see, if you wanted to visit the same prostitute again, you would look for her her symbol across her head. That was her trademark. And of course, the trademark of religious Babylon is similar. She's like a prostitute. And I saw verse 6, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. 
So he describes this harlot as being drunk with the blood of the saints, with those who witness for Jesus. Some people think, is he talking about church saints? No, remember, every time you see the word saints in the Bible, it's not always church saints. In the Old Testament, God talks about the saints of the Lord. In the church, he speaks of the saints who are in Corinth. We learn of millennial saints, and here we learn of tribulation saints. So the church is gone. God eventually seals 144,000 Jewish missionaries. He has two witnesses on the Temple Mount. He even uses an angel to preach the gospel. And these saints who give their life to Jesus, they pay the ultimate price. Revelation 20 verse 4 says they have their heads cut off. So here's this one world religion. You, mean, you don't ascribe to our one world religion? No, no. It denies the uniqueness of Jesus that he is Lord. I guess you don't value your head. No, I value Jesus more. You say, well, I'm going up in the rapture. I'm not planning to be here for this time frame in human history. You may not. If you know Jesus, you won't be here. But God wrote this not just for those who will pour over it in the final seven years. He has written it for the saints of God to pour over for 2,000 years. Because as we approach the end of time, especially in persecution increases, because there is a pluralism of the religions of the world, then you become the odd man out. Just spoke with one of our college students. He said, uh, I said, how's it going? He said, well, it's kind of hard being a Christian there. What do you mean? No one ascribes to my morality. Yep, that's the day we're in. And we need to prepare our children for that day. Let me give some applications as we close. Number one, Satan is not against religion, he's for it. He's not against religion, he's for it. The Bible teaches that Satan's not against religion, not at all. In fact, he uses it. When he slithers into the pages of human history in the book of Genesis, he comes with a religious temptation. Genesis 3.5, he said to Eve, for God knows that the day in which you eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. That's a religious temptation. That's not a temptation to fall down. That's a temptation to fall up. One of Satan's chief tools is religion. Here's Johnny. He sees all these saints who won't ascribe to this religion, and, and this one world system is drunk with her blood in it. And the text says, I wondered greatly. Paraphrase, I was blown away. Well, listen, as the spirit of Antichrist that has been at work since the inception of the church, as 1 John 2 teaches, it's a predecessor for the coming Antichrist who will literally be embodied in human flesh. But the spirit of Antichrist will grow. And as you see the evil one setting the table, as you see a sovereign God allowing things to take place, Israel in the land, globalism, growing immorality like Lot's day, growing apostasy, then you know things are not going to get easier. They're going to get more difficult. And you need to prepare your children because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You say, well, how do we do that? 
Well, it's supposed to start with the preacher. Paul tells Timothy that he is to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound, it's a word for healthy, in sound or healthy doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. A person who is a pastor is to lead through the preaching of the word. Someone told me again just 10 days ago, you'd have more people in your church if your sermons were shorter. I said, I have no doubt. But that's not what God has called me to. I don't want to be a part of fluffy Christianity. And yet we have these church services that are driven by emotionalism. Someone said hey, to me recently, he said, your church was kind of different. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I've been in all these churches for a while here, and they're so dark, and the ceilings are painted out, and, you know, the stage is lit, and your lights are on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? You know, their music is not really even congregational. It's a bunch of people performing on the platform, unlike this church where we sing and make melody in our hearts to God and to one another. It's a performance. It's an emotionally driven thing. And so we've got books like Jesus Calling, and she teaches you how to write in the first person what God is saying to you. If you've got that book or any of its component parts and in series that have come with, you should throw them in the basket. You've got Beth Moore who has Holy Spirit goosebumps. And she basically describes these text messages and these emails she gets directly from God and she puts it in the first person. That's wrong. That's extra revelational. That's beyond the scope of Scripture. No, hold fast the faithful word, Timothy. Preach the word. That's what people need to hear. Secondly, the woman represents a unified system of religion. It would be simplistic to say that the woman in this passage represents only the Roman Catholic Church, which is sometimes a common error made by evangelicals. Now, it's obvious that the Roman Catholic Church has moved towards ecumenicism, especially in the last three popes. But this is going to be a one-world religion. It's going to be all bled together. I have no doubt probably they'll use the Vatican headquarters as their capital. It'll be in Rome somewhere. But just remember, Christ died for the Pope. And Christ died for one billion Roman Catholics. And don't ever forget that while the Roman Catholic Church in its history has been drunk with the blood of martyrs, during the Reformation, they were involved in murdering one million Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians for preaching the gospel. And while they may be drunk with the blood of the saints, don't confuse the institution with the people, many who are like sheep without a shepherd, who are apart and attend that church. So I'm not here to bash Catholics. I'm here to win them to Jesus. And you can only win them to Jesus by telling them the truth. Third and finally, make sure that you're part of the kingdom of God. We didn't get to it in verse 8 of chapter 13, but I quoted it a few weeks ago. He speaks of earth dwellers, 
Those who dwell on the earth, who live for this life only, it's literally earth dweller, used I think 13 times in the revelation of unbelievers, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. God has a book, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Of course, because he's omniscient, he knows everyone who will be saved. That doesn't change your free will. You need to make sure that your name is written in that book. You say, well, how would I know if it's written there? You choose for it to be written there. You are one of the whosoever wills. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Have you called upon Jesus? It's amazing how many states and even foreign countries live stream us every week. Got a marvelous letter from someone just the other day from another state. People are finding Christ. But listen, I know people are listening who've never received Jesus. To whom much is given, much is expected. You've heard the gospel. If the rapture to happen before I leave this campus today, and it could, it'll be too late for some of you. Call upon him that you might be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of Scripture that we have been studying. When we look at the world around us and we see the events that are happening, we see it's not falling apart, it's falling together according to your sovereign plan that you wrote about ever before it happened. Help us to be alert to the circumstances. Thank you that we don't have to be discouraged or despondent, that the worst that can happen to a child of God is to be executed and to go to heaven. So help us to be faithful, just as we see these saints who are executed during the coming tribulation and those who have died and been martyred throughout the history of the church. Help us to be faithful. Whatever kind of persecution that may come, whether it's being ostracized, excluded from social gatherings, whatever it means, help us to be faithful and help someone today who's never called upon Jesus to say in simple childlike faith, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in his name. Amen.